You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. This episode of the podcast contains explicit language. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 12 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. So once again, we're going to return to the Compromise of 1850. As we talked about previously on the show, the Compromise hadn't reduced the tension between North and South over the issue of slavery. In fact, part of the Compromise, the new Fugitive Slave Law, only served to ramp up that tension considerably. The enhanced fugitive slave law and its high-handed enforcement by the federal government in the 1850s roused the ire of Northerners. The controversial captures of runaway slaves, combined with the sensational impact of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, fueled anti-slavery sentiment in the North. And it's worth pointing out again that the law was an affront to states' rights, especially the personal liberty laws of several northern states. The operation of the Fugitive Slave Law trampled on the rights and sovereignty of free northern states to the benefit of slave owners. So it's ironic that after the Civil War, southerners would start to claim that their cause had been all about upholding states' rights. Despite the increased sectional tension related to the Fugitive Slave Law, Stephen Douglas, the senator from Illinois who had, who had shepherded the Compromise of 1850 through Congress, could take comfort in the fact that since the Compromise's passage, slavery hadn't been a significant issue of debate on Capitol Hill. But that changed in 1854. That's because, as settlers continued to push westward, the politicians were once again forced to deal with the political balance of power in Congress between free states and slave states. Since the Missouri Compromise in 1820, the geographic 3630 line had worked relatively well, mostly because states entered the Union in pairs. First there was Maine, and Missouri, then Michigan, and my home state of Arkansas, and then there was Iowa and Wisconsin, which were balanced by Florida and Texas. Only in 1850 did Congress deviate from this system when it allowed California in as a free state although it had once again respected the 3630 boundary line with the disposition of the New Mexico Territory. But then in January 1854, Stephen Douglas introduced into the Senate a report of the Committee on Territories, which he chaired. The report recommended the creation of two new territories in the Louisiana Purchase Lands, Kansas and Nebraska. In advancing this plan, Douglas might have been chiefly motivated by his desire to get a transcontinental railroad built across the plains to California. There had already been much debate over the path such a railroad would take across America. There were some who favored a southern route, while others favored a northern route. 
Not surprisingly, Douglas favored the northern option, which routed the railroad through Chicago to the benefit and profit of his constituents in the state of Illinois. To get the Transcontinental Railroad built where he wanted it, Senator Douglas needed to push through a plan that would set up territorial governments in the remaining unorganized lands of the Louisiana Purchase. The snag was that Southern congressional delegations would oppose Douglas's plan since, one, it meant they would lose out on the southern route for the railroad, and two, formally organizing those lands into territories would mean the first step toward the addition of new free states to the Union, since the lands in question were north of the 3630 Missouri Compromise Line and thus close to slavery. But Douglas himself had no moral or other qualms about slavery or its extension. So in order to push through his plan through Congress, he was more than willing to fudge the 34-year-old Missouri Compromise Line if it meant he could grab the political prize of a northern route for the Transcontinental Railroad. Douglas matter-of-factly stated, I deal with slavery as a political question involving questions of public policy. To get enough Southern votes for this plan, Douglas was willing to do away with the Missouri Compromise Line and allow the people who lived in the Nebraska and Kansas territories to decide for themselves whether their state would allow slavery or not. This idea, which we've talked about before, was called popular sovereignty. Even though his plan would do away with the 3630 boundary line, Douglas, by separating the unorganized lands into two separate territories, Nebraska and Kansas, was clearly still hoping that the precedent of the Missouri Compromise would still be followed. That is, that one of these new territories would be slave, the other free. Nevertheless, Douglas predicted that his plan would still create a political storm in the North. Well, he was right. In fact, the outrage in the North over the Kansas-Nebraska Act would give birth to a new political party, the Republican Party. But more about that a bit later. Senator Douglas's bill organizing the two territories passed the Senate on a vote of 37 to 14 and the House of Representatives by a vote of 113 to 100, and then it was signed into law by President Franklin Pierce. Once the bill was passed, it very quickly became obvious that Kansas, directly west of the slave state of Missouri, was going to be ground zero in a political battle between North and South between slave states and free states. That's because each side was grimly determined that their supporters would be the ones to shape Kansas's position on slavery. Between 1855 and 1856, Kansas was not only a political battleground, it became a literal battleground, as pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces resorted to deadly violence in an attempt to gain advantage in the territory. Northern abolitionist groups sponsored settlers to move to Kansas in an attempt to establish a non-slaveholding majority that would ban slavery in the new state. But pro-slavery Missourians, armed and threatening, came across the border in large numbers to intimidate non-slave owners and to illegally stuff ballot boxes. In that tense atmosphere, violence quickly broke out. Pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces formed militias and used open force in what was shaping up to be an actual battle over the territory. The first elections in Kansas in 1855 favored the pro-slavery position, but the results were obviously fraudulent, 
since thousands of Missouri border ruffians had flocked across the border on election day, and, besides threatening anti-slavery voters with beatings and whippings, the Missourians cast so many fraudulent ballots that the pro-slavery vote was several times larger than the entire number of eligible voters in the territory. Despite widespread outrage in the North at the pro-slavery victory in Kansas and the fraudulent means by which it was achieved, the administration of President Pierce certified the results and officially recognized the new pro-slavery government of Kansas with its capital at Lecompton. The pro-slavery legislature in Lecompton proceeded to enact a territorial slave code so severe that anyone who expressed disagreement with slavery was guilty of a felony, punishable by two years' hard labor. Aiding a fugitive slave brought ten years' imprisonment. Inciting slaves to rebel was punishable by death. But anti-slavery settlers in Kansas refused to accept the results of the election or the Pierce administration's craven recognition of the fraudulent results, so they conducted their own unauthorized revote. These settlers, along with a significant number of Kansans who cared nothing for slavery one way or another, but who disliked being intimidated and threatened by the Missouri border ruffians, they elected a rival, anti-slavery government with a large majority of the territory's legal voters. The free state capital was situated at the town of Lawrence. So, as a result of this extraordinary chain of events, Kansas now had two rival governments, each claiming to be the lawful government of the territory. In this toxic, volatile atmosphere, the violence between the two groups escalated, and as a mini-civil war raged, newspapers around the country dubbed the embattled territory Bleeding Kansas. To help anti-slavery settlers counter the violence of the pro-slavery settlers and the Missouri border ruffians, New England abolitionists shipped boxes of rifles to Kansas. The rifles were named Beecher's Bibles, after Henry Ward Beecher, the abolitionist preacher and brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, had remarked that a rifle might prove to be a more powerful agent of morality in Kansas than a Bible. On May 21, 1856, a pro-slavery force numbering some 800 men raided the town of Lawrence, the free state capital of Kansas. The Kansans and Missourians rode into Lawrence under two flags. One was a blood-red flag emblazoned with the words, Southern Rights, and the other was the American flag. As the pro-slavery forces had prepared for the raid, David Atchison, a former U.S. Senator from Missouri, told the hyped-up hooligans encamped outside Lawrence, quote, Draw your revolvers and bowie knives and cool them in the heart's blood of all those damn dogs that dare defend that damn breathing hole of hell. Atchison then told the cheering men, quote, Never to slacken or stop until every spark of free state, free speech, free niggers, or free in any shape is quenched out of Kansas. End quote. But the citizens of Lawrence wisely decided not to resist. So rather than cooling their weapons and anyone's heart's blood, the pro-slavery ruffians contented themselves with destroying two newspaper offices and burning and looting homes and shops. Before departing, they actually used a cannon to bombard the Free State Hotel. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., on May 22nd, the Senate chamber also became a combat zone as South Carolina Congressman Preston S. Brooks used a heavy cane to viciously attack Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. A few days before, Sumner had made his 
Crime Against Kansas speech in which he was sharply critical on a personal level of Brooks's cousin, Senator Andrew P. Butler. When Brooks entered the Senate chamber on May 22nd and attacked Sumner, it was to avenge the insults that Sumner had leveled at Butler. This was an important event, so we'll talk more about the caning of Senator Sumner in next week's episode. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Back out in Kansas, a recent arrival in the territory, a 56-year-old abolitionist named John Brown, along with four of his sons and two neighbors, had left their homesteads and were traveling the 40 miles to help defend Lawrence against pro-slavery forces when Brown heard that the unresisting town had already been overrun. Brown raged against the pro-slavery hooligans, and he also railed against the citizens of Lawrence for their failure to defend the town. And then, hard on the heels of the news about the raid on Lawrence, Brown received word of the caning of Sumner in Washington, D.C., Witnesses said that at the news from Washington, Brown went crazy, declaring that something must be done to defend the rights of anti-slavery settlers and to strike terror in the hearts of the pro-slavery forces. Brown figured that at least five anti-slavery men had been murdered in Kansas since the start of the territory's troubles, and so based on the Old Testament principle of an eye for an eye, Brown and four of his sons and two neighbors set out to even the score. On the night of May 24th, in the vicinity of Potawatomi Creek, Brown and his murderous little band abducted five pro-slavery settlers from their beds and from the arms of their wives and children. They then hacked the men to death with old surplus army swords. According to James McPherson in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, this shocking massacre went unpunished by legal process. Federal officials did manage to arrest two of Brown's sons who had not taken part in the affair, while pro-slavery bands burned the Brown homesteads. The twin traumas of Lawrence and Potawatomi escalated the bushwhacking war in Kansas. One of Brown's sons was among the 200 men killed in this conflict. Considering themselves soldiers in a holy war, Brown and his other sons somehow evaded capture and were never indicted for the Potawatomi killings. 
And despite strenuous efforts by the U.S. Army to contain this violence, the troops were too few to keep up with the hit-and-run raids that characterized the fighting. End quote. We'll talk more about John Brown and his life story when we get to the future episode that we'll devote to covering his raid on Harper's Ferry. We'll also return briefly to Bleeding Kansas during the Buchanan administration, but for now we'll let you know that while the Army troops in the territory did manage to restore some degree of order, there were still additional deaths as the low-intensity conflict between pro- and anti-slavery forces continued to smolder year after year. In fact, Kansas remained an unresolved issue right up until the eve of the war, when the troubled territory was finally admitted to the Union as a free state. By the time that happened in January 1861, hardly anyone back east noticed, since by then the nation was teetering on the brink of civil war. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in American history. That slavery could be allowed into an area in which it had been banned since 1820 changed the political landscape of America. The political consequences of the Act's passage in 1854 were numerous and far-reaching. Those consequences would be, 1. The venerable old Missouri Compromise Line of 3630 was done away with. 2. Much of the Compromise of 1850 also went out the window. 3. The Democratic Party was split along sectional lines. 4. The Whig Party collapsed and faded away into history. And 5. Last but not least, an all-new, all-Northern, anti-slavery political party was created, the Republican Party. We want to devote the rest of the episode to looking at the changing political landscape in America during the 1850s. We want everyone to understand how the rise of the Republican Party happened, but please know that within the scope of the podcast, we really can't do much more than scratch the surface of this topic, so please feel free to explore it more on your own. Much of the changes in the political landscape that we're referring to happened between 1854 and 1858. Up until that time, for over a decade, two political parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, had dominated American politics. Up until 1850, the Whigs and the Democrats maintained balanced constituencies in both the North and South. But the widening political gap between Northern and Southern interest, a gap which was split open still further by the Compromise of 1850, created such dissension within the two parties that neither could maintain its respective coalitions between Northerners and Southerners. Essentially what happened, and things had been moving this way for decades. But essentially what happened in the 1850s is that the issue of slavery finally split American politics along sectional rather than along party lines. After the Compromise of 1850, the Whig Party, which had always been a loose coalition of interest groups, had finally all but disintegrated as a result of the tensions placed on party unity between Southern Whigs, who said they were steadfast supporters of slavery and its extension, and Northern Whigs, who claimed they were stalwart opponents of slavery and its extension. With the final collapse of the Whigs in 1855, almost half of the American electorate was left searching for a new political home. And then the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act took a substantial toll on the Democratic Party. 
Northern Democrats paid a heavy political price for their support of Stephen Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska bill. Douglas, by the way, was a Democrat. The Democratic Party became almost a purely Southern party after the Northern Democrats, who had supported the measure in the House and Senate and provided the margin of victory to ensure its passage, those Northern Democrats, by and large, were soundly defeated in the next round of elections as outraged Northern voters turned to other parties more in line with their anti-slavery sentiments. One such party that attracted disaffected Northern Democratic voters was the Free Soil Party. We mentioned the Free Soilers briefly back in Episode 8 of the podcast. If you'll recall, we said the Free Soilers supported the Wilmot Proviso, which would ban the extension of slavery into new territories. They attracted dissatisfied Democrats, anti-slavery Whigs, and others interested in limiting the expansion of slavery so that whites could be free to work those new lands without having to compete with slave labor. In other words, for many free soilers, free soil was intended for whites only. The party's motto was free soil, free labor, free men. Another party was the Know-Nothings, or the American Party. The short but spectacular rise of the Know-Nothings was a reaction to the millions of immigrants pouring into the United States in the 1840s and 1850s. Anti-foreign and anti-Catholic groups, as well as some secret societies, were behind the rise of the Know-Nothings. And they were called the Know-Nothings because if someone asked about the organization's activities or membership, they were supposed to respond, I know nothing. Right. The Know-Nothings peaked in 1855, claiming a million members. By the next year, they were gone. But before their demise, the Know-Nothings drew support from Whigs in both the North and South, and it was this desertion that led to the Whig Party's final collapse in 1855. And that brings us to the Republican Party. Born in the Midwest, the Republican Party was formed in 1854 as a direct response to Northern outrage over the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The new party was a coalition that included former Whigs, anti-slavery Democrats, free soilers, and know-nothings. The Republicans would be a purely sectional party, drawing its members from Northerners and from border state residents opposed to slavery. The Republicans would support policies that favored business, high tariffs, and internal improvements, but the cornerstone of their platform would be their opposition to the extension of slavery into any of the new territories. Although they opposed slavery and considered it a hindrance to the growth of the national economy, most Republicans believed the federal government had no power to touch slavery in the states where it already existed. It's important to remember that most Republicans in the 1850s were neither abolitionists nor advocates of black equality, although quite a few Republican activists and leaders were in fact intensely opposed to slavery and supported racial equality. Successfully riding the northern outrage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Republicans won huge victories in the 1854 congressional elections and positioned themselves to be a major player in the upcoming 1856 presidential election. And that's where we'll leave things for now. So next week, after taking a closer look at the caning of Charles Sumner in the Senate chamber, we'll talk about the importance of that presidential election of 1856. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. Our recommendation this time is Bleeding Kansas, Contested Liberty in the Civil War Era, 
by Nicole Etchison. And this book is really a, a must-read for anyone wanting to understand the chaotic situation in Kansas in the period before the Civil War. Etchison does a great job of focusing on the consequences of opening up the territory to popular sovereignty as far as the white settlers' ensuing struggle for their political liberties. And then she skillfully weaves in the issue of slavery and slavery's moral and economic dimensions. So that's Bleeding Kansas by Nicole Etchison. And as always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The music at the start and finish of the show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used on the podcast by permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for episode 13, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.